an honor it is to bring in uh, a cat who, um, from probably his earliest years, um, was hearing things, sounds in his head uh, that ultimately he wanted to um, express uh, through his apparatus and nothing traditional uh, would really suffice for my guest who is an inventor of instruments, uh, has built his own instruments with the help of a lot of engineers and has also done a prolific amount of work in terms of sonic expansion of music. Uh, and I had a chance to see him with a dear spirit uncle last week, Steve Roach. And uh, even though it was the first time that they had ever collaborated live together on the bandstand, uh, it was such a uh, inspiring performance because both of them uh, remained very vulnerable on stage uh, allowing themselves to, you know, potentially uh, fall uh, and uh, and take chances and go over the edge, but they didn't. They they went for it and they got it and they hit it pretty good. And to me, that's what the kind of music that I love, whether it's recorded in the studio or on the bandstand live, is that when people go for it, they go over the edge and they play beyond what they know. Because when you're dealing with people that have really a tremendous ability musically uh that's when the magic can occur uh and help heal humanity ben neal welcome to the jake feinberg show great eh. to be here really great to be here thank you so much for inviting me well it's uh, an it's honor great. it's yeah. an honor you know i what do you did do you can you talk about the first time that that you connected with uh, uh robert moog sure um so I had uh, the idea when uh, I was in undergrad school, uh, I had, I was studying classical trumpet and, uh, but I was always interested in a lot of different kinds of music. Um, I was really into art rock, minimalism, uh, um, electric uh, fusion, like all the stuff Miles was doing. And sure. uh, so I, I started thinking about, you know, that I wanted to get away from just being a, a straight trumpet performer. Um, and uh, I, you know, my my whole trajectory uh, was was altered uh, by my uh, experimentation with uh, hallucinogens. <laughs> uh, I, uh, yeah, join the club. Dude. I, I actually had a, a kind of epiphany uh the first time that i took lsd and i was i happened to be in the studio of this artist who i had never met before this was in youngstown ohio where i was living at the time and he had created this pyramid uh that you could get inside of it was about five feet tall and like eight feet uh in <laughs> diameter and uh i won't go into all the details but it had a mirrored floor and so you could sit in this thing and it literally, even if you weren't on anything, you felt like you were floating in air, basically. Wow. Wow. Um, and I had been, you know, thinking a lot about wanting to start getting into doing my own music and uh, getting away from just a straight performance thing. And I had also been fooling around a little bit with, I had a trumpet that I could take the bell off of. And I was taking that and just sticking it onto the first valve slide of a regular trumpet and messing around with different mutes and uh, 
I had a little Korg analog synthesizer that I was fooling around with. Anyway, basically in that experience, I kind of had this vision uh, of an instrument uh, that became uh, the mutant trumpet, a multi-belled instrument with electronics. And, you know, I'd been reading and studying a lot of uh, the writings of Cage and Stockhausen and, you know, all the avant-garde where you know, a lot of them, Stockhausen in particular, really talked about, you know, how musicians needed to modify their instruments with electronics, et cetera, et cetera. So I was, you know, getting into doing that on my own. I was playing in some uh, being in Northeast Ohio, this is in the early 80s, the whole punk new wave scene was really vibrant there. Absolutely. And that was and that was really where I first started uh, experimenting uh, with using the, the mutant trumpet. And in addition to, I was playing some of Stockhausen's pieces and other avant-garde pieces that would require a lot of mute changes because just to explain briefly, the instrument has three bells and it has an extra set of valves that enables me to switch between these different bells. Uh, with, and it's you, it's not playing three, I can't play chords acoustically. It's about shifting timbres, essentially creating a multi-timbral instrument that would be able to, to emulate electronic music gestures, uh, of particularly of filtering through using these different mutes as kind of like different nodes on a filter. Well, around that time, getting now, I finally answer your question. It's, no, it's great. You, there's so many sub questions. Go ahead. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Robert, I, I'm looking through Keyboard Magazine. This is like in 1981. And I see this little ad in the back of the magazine, like uh, Robert Moog uh, seeking, uh, you know, freelance projects. <laughs> And I was almost like a I, like, is this real? You know, it's so great, man. I, oh, and uh, so I I got in touch with him, and um, at, at that time he was uh, living in Newton, Mass. He was working with Ray Kurzweil. Uh, that was in you know the early days when MIDI was j just really coming out, and they were, but specifically they were developing the first touch sensitive keyboard, which they did develop. It came out around that time. And so he, uh, he invited me there. And then he also had a home in Asheville, North Carolina. And, you know, he just got very interested in my instrument. He, he was really taken with the idea and uh, really wanted to work with me. And so he, uh, you know, as I say, he invited me to actually, I think the first time I met him was in Asheville. Now that I'm remembering. Really? Uh, yeah. But cause he, he had a house there and then he was also, uh, living up and had a place in Newton where he, in mass where he was working with Kurzweil. Uh, so I think, yeah, he invited me to his house in uh, Asheville and then, uh, we started talking and he, he basically built my first system uh, I mean, he barely charged me, you know, he just charged me for the components. Uh, and we became really, really close friends. And and I spent, uh, when he completed it about a year later, I spent several days with him uh, at his place up in Newton and, you know, where he was, you know, basically showing me some of the different things that I could do with it and making some different modifications and that kind of thing. And it was all analog. It was a it was an analog uh, pitch to voltage device, 
uh, and uh, a small rack of uh, modules from uh, this company, Synton in Holland. Uh, and I, I used that system for you know a long time. I still have it. I haven't really used it you know for anything in a few years but uh well, I got I, I just want to he was ahead. very generous he was extremely generous to me and and he really loved music he really he told me that his favorite music was Morton Feldman like that's <laughs> what, dude that is uh, dude that's some of my favorite music man yeah yeah so yeah, yeah uh, you know Ben I want so um I want to go back to this thing can you just to me I'm fascinated with you know Luciano Barrio, Stockhausen, uh, yeah. you know these <clears throat> these composers, these classical composers and uh who were really stretching the boundaries and the traditions of the music and I I I wanted you to just go a little bit deeper on what Stockhausen what he was talking about when he meant when, when he was talking about augmenting instruments with electronics. That seems like way ahead of his time. Well, I mean, he did a number of pieces like that. Uh, right. Uh, his piece, uh, Sternklang, uh, I think that's from, it's park music, like 76, like that. Right. Uh, several different chamber ensembles that were in a park, and all the acoustic instruments are modified with ring modulators and filters, his piece Mantra for two pianos, uh, similar kind of thing. And of course, Cage was with David Tudor, uh, you know, was really interested in that as well. Uh, so I think, you know, it was it was an idea that had been, uh, you know, kicking around in the avant-garde, you know, in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, around the just the general idea of, expanding the whole you know expressive dimensions of music to and and but particularly what i have always been interested in uh that inspired me so much about those those writings and, and also frankly about what miles was doing uh at the same time was that i, I think they were seeing the the potential of uh of connecting acoustic instruments with electronics i mean of right. course when electronic music first came out everybody you know a lot of those composers got really excited about it and you know they started doing tape music concerts well you know guess what that wasn't very exciting you know to go to a concert <laughs> I, and, dig. And, I dig yeah, yeah. right and you yeah. and you have a tape recorder sitting there uh, you know, just, you know, playing back some fixed composition. And you know what? I still feel that way today about a lot of this, uh, you know, kind of electroacoustic academic music that gets done, you know, even if it does have 150 speakers or something like that. It, it just, for me personally, uh, as someone who had already invested a tremendous amount of my life, you know, going back to my, you know, being in like middle school, uh, I was from North, I'm from North Carolina, and I had been a pretty serious, you know, trumpet student at the North Carolina School of the Arts going back, you know, way back. I was just really into this idea of, of connecting uh, the, the, all this new emerging technologically based music with these historic, you know, you know, more traditional kind of instrumentation and, uh, 
John Hassel was a huge role model for me in that, uh, and also became a, a mentor of mine, you know. So, so yeah, and Hassel, he actually was Stockhausen's, uh, like, copyist at one time. Uh, you know, he had gone to the Darmstadt School and uh, ended up working with, with Stockhausen. So, yeah, I, I had a lot of... Uh, a lot of roots in that music and in terms of the actual music though uh i'm much more uh on the minimalist side um i am not i i really never got into serialist music that much and atonality uh my whole thing and again this i think this also does relate to the idea of electronics and and, and instruments is i'm much more interested in harmonics yes and uh and the whole uh, the the natural phenomena of overtone, and 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 but I think all of that music, and Stockhausen of course wrote a lot about this these ideas that the whole idea of all of that stuff was to bring that that music could ge basically generate these kinds of higher psychological states. Uh, that it, it could really by by blending uh, these different components, and and that's what I was really interested in doing. Yeah, I mean, it's it, well. I just want to. You said something interesting. You know, you had the Tape Center in San Francisco. There was a lot of like, right. you know, you'd have a lot of these performances. People would put a tape in, essentially, and it was just spitting out some kind of recorded performance. Right, and uh, you were talking about modern day academic where even if they have a huge sonic output um do you feel like can you just talk a little bit about your own experience about not getting wrapped up in a it sounded to me like you said some of the stuff today is a little bit too formulaic uh for you even even if there's huge amounts of sonic expansion like if there's 150 speakers and i feel like did you were you able to come up at a time you went to a music and art high school, North Carolina, and then, yeah. so you did have the academy, but were you able to sort of balance between improvisation and spontaneity with the academy? How do you feel that balance that you feel like today? I mean, so much of today is like, there's just so many ways to do something that I feel sometimes younger cats get, and this doesn't apply just to electronic music, but there's just so many different ways, supposed right ways to do it that cats are intimidated or you know they they just feel like they have to follow as opposed well, to well it's interesting you say that i mean you know i'm i'm a professor and one of the things i've been teaching it at ramapo college in new jersey for like 15 years and i do find that a lot of younger people at least of my students and this was something that really surprised me when i started teaching but i think because of what you just said a lot of those people, a lot of these younger people have a really hard time knowing what they like. Exactly. Or, That's or, or knowing what they want to follow because there are just, you know, because, you know, in this whole kind of whatever post postmodern world that we full live in, interconnect, full interconnection. Viable, yeah, yeah you know? totally. Everything's totally. viable. <laughs> well, for me, you know what was really important? College radio. Uh, I, 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 growing up, I was, uh, grew up like in the Winston-Salem, North Carolina area. And, um, yeah, I was studying at school of the arts, but I also, uh, you there, Wake Forest University was there and they had a late night radio show 
which I which played like all this progressive rock, you know, Bowie and uh, Eno. And, oh, I love it. And all that stuff. And I used to lay in bed every night. At the, the show came on at 11 o'clock. I used to lay in bed every night with headphones and listen to that show religiously. And ultimately, I actually got to know some of the DJs and hung out with them and stuff. Um, and uh, and it was. Were they playing it through? Were they playing a whole side through? Also, was it like totally? Uh, sometimes they might yeah. feature albums, but no, it was just it was like a typical kind of you know late night college radio format. Very little talking, you know, just going from you know one you know one track to another or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I think being exposed to you know all of like that kind of music uh, was you know was really important to me, and in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, I, 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 you know, I got into, you know, being, uh, doing classical music because that was, you know, what was kind of presented to me uh, as an opportunity. You know, I never, I actually never learned to play bebop. I, I never mm -hmm. learned to play uh, uh, overcomplicated chord changes. I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who can do that, but I don't know. I just, I... I, at a certain point, and and this was where the whole punk aesthetic became really important for me. Like I I got disillusioned, even though I was a good player. I mean, I I made the finals on the first few orchestra auditions I took, and you know I I, I feel like if I would have really wanted to do that, that I would have been able to find my way absolutely into. It. But I had a kind of reaction against the 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 tech the, the all the emphasis on technique i love it and, you know that yeah. there's a you know that there's a right way to do things it it became too much like sport <laughs> dude you you're know, big, I mean, you're nailing no i'm telling you it got too too wonkish and heady as, and you're talking about like that bebop language in jazz yeah, specifically yeah yeah, yeah. miles yeah. was miles was bored to death of that stuff that's well, yeah, I mean, Miles, Miles had left all that behind. I mean, yeah. he was he was into Sonics and Groove, you know, I mean, yeah. in in the seventies, and and I I really I loved that stuff. What I heard of it, I I didn't have I didn't have all those records, but I certainly had uh, Bitches Brew and Silent Way. Some of the other ones, I I you know I I don't know, I just hadn't come across them until later on. But, uh, but no, but there's yeah. the, there's this thing there's this thing that. And I've been, you know, because really, I mean, this bebop aesthetic, it like, uh, you know, to me, you made a conscious decision because you clearly were a good player. But it was yeah. like, I'm not going to I'm not going to follow my purpose in life is not to be a chops driven facility, riffology, no feeling cat. I want to invent. I want to invent sonically and I want to yeah. do it on my own. And I going back to your students today. I yeah. just wonder how effective it is, how hard it is, because we're fully interconnected and we're saturated with information. And so much of it is very mediocre, to put it mildly, yeah. that that how are they how do you got, put them on a path to at least see if they can discover what they want to find? Well, one of the best things that I've found is having them DJ. Like yeah. I, it, I, I, I teach in a school where uh, my, the, the program that I teach in is a, a non-conventional uh, music program. Most of my students do not come from any kind of traditional musical background. They uh, have gotten into doing 
uh, producing. Most of them may get into it through gaming and like that kind of thing. And, wow. you know, using different software applications and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the DJ is really an important fit, uh, just as a kind of archetype of, you know, what it means to be an artist, because when I think with a lot of these younger people, it's also, they, they are living so much of their life in the virtual world that it's a little bit hard sometimes for them to express themselves, uh, you know, to say what they like. Absolutely. Because they're afraid somebody's going to criticize it or it's not going to be cool or something. But, but yeah, I, I find that, uh, you know, having them, you know, put together like DJ sets uh, where they can essentially express themselves through someone else's music uh, that, that, that really helps them a lot. And to, to focus on, you know, Philip Glass in a, in, in his, uh, he talks about it in his autobiography. It's also in the Red Bull, uh, one of the Red Bull music films that when he was working for Richard Serra as an assistant, he told Sarah that, you know, I, I wish I could learn how to draw because I can't even draw a tree. And Sarah says, well, I'll teach you how to see, and then you'll be able to learn how to draw. Wow. And I oh, feel like, oh. and, and in Glass goes on to say that he realized in that moment that music is about listening, poetry is about speaking. And, and I think, you know, as an educator, what I find is that it's just more and more about listening. Uh, and, and that's what is so great about, you know, that when I first started working with DJs in the late eighties and nineties, it really had a big impact on me. Uh, and it was always super impressive to me how these guys who most of them didn't have any kind of traditional musical background, but they, but they knew their music so well, like they, they had an incredible psych encyclopedic knowledge of all this music and, exactly which part of the track they were going to put together <laughs> yeah, and i, I feel did, like I more and more that's what creativity is it, it's yeah. it's making choices i mean creativity is always making choices now you go back to the 70s what we were just talking about you know when i had one college radio station that i could listen to and one school that i could go to with one trumpet to, you know what i mean and our choices were so much more limited now we have infinite choice you know, uh, so I think in a lot of sense, that's like what music education becomes is is much more focused on listening. And because essentially, you know, we're sort of over the idea now that any one thing is necessarily any better than another. I mean, I have some issues with that, but it's kind of, you know, by default. I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like that's, you know, that that's where we're at. But let me just say one other thing Go ahead, about, please. about that, about, you know, going back to more, you know, sort of like why I, I had this reaction against, as you said, you can't, yeah, please, I, I want you to riff on, yeah, riff on the, yeah. the anti-technical thing, you right, know what right. I mean? That, that music to me was something that was much more, it was much deeper and, uh, you know, much more spiritual and philosophical and transcendent than being able to, you know, do these kind of technical feats of wizardry, you know, <laughs> whether it was playing, you know, Petrushka in the Rite of Spring or, 
you know, transcribing, you know, Dizzy and Fred, Freddie Harlow's and stuff like that. I just, I, I got kind of disillusioned by that. And, and I think the punk new wave sensibility was that I just so happened to be, to fall into also had a big influence on that where all of a sudden people who weren't really musicians like the talking heads, who I was a huge fan of, you know, they were, they were actually able to, you know, make these, you know, very strong musical statements. So, yeah, I started thinking about, you know, what, what can I do that will, that will not rely, even though I am a virtuoso, what can I do that will not lean on that in a traditional kind of way? In other words, to try to like, just peel a lot of that back. And, and that, what was going on as I started experimenting with this really it's like a it's it's really a single gesture way which is having these different bells with different mutes in them and being able to shift from one timbre to another and by slowly depressing the valve you get these shifts in timbre which are, which very strongly resemble moving the frequency on a resonant filter um, and then combining that with electronics so that it creates this kind of uh, synergy between electronic music gestures and electronic gestures. And, and, and the thing that I wanted, and this really comes out of more out of cage. The other thing that I, as I started experimenting with that, even with my, and learning to use my first analog system you know, the thing that always excited me the most would be when I would be able to, to get something, set something in motion that I didn't plan. Right. That exactly. I didn't pursue. Exactly. You know, like, like the, the non-intentional, the non-intentional aspect. And <laughs> this idea of which, you know, I'm writing a book right now about uh, the democratization of music. And one of the really important ideas in the book is this notion of autopoiesis creating a system which is kind of its own living system, which, I mean, composers were doing that all through the 20th century with uh, randomness and chance and even serialism, you know, way getting away from, okay, this is a sound, this is a melody that I hear in my head and I'm going to write that down and, you know, people are going to listen to it. Instead of that, I'm going to do this thing on this weird instrument and then, and put that into electronics and then have it come back at me. And of course, a lot of the times it might come back at you and you think, oh, well, that's shit. I'm not even, gonna, you know, I don't want to use that. But sometimes it comes back at me and it's something really, uh, really beautiful and, and even expressive. Like that's what really excited me. And, and that's, and so, you know, I mean, it started out as a, kind of fringe, almost like a goof thing, you know, but then it just, as I got more serious about it, and then, of course, when digital, I, you know, I started incorporated, I, I worked with David Behrman, who was one of the real pioneers of interactive computer music in the 70s. I did two albums with him in the 80s, and he really showed me the potential of, you know, being able to interact with computers. We were using these Atari computers, and you know, wow. I went to New York in '83, and I was you know, really immersed wow. myself in the whole 
uh, downtown minimalist scene. I was not into the free improv scene of Zorn and all that stuff. I was going to ask you about that. No, I want to. I, 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 I want to. The yeah. older cats, the minimalists. I yeah. dig. No, no. The, I, I don't want to. I want to ask you though. Was there? <laughs> can you talk to the audience? <clears throat> so many cats. Um, you use that term term virtuosic, and like yeah. every time. I mean, I, I I do my own thing when I go to shows, and, and I I just sort of go out of body but so many times when i ask people how what they thought of a certain show doesn't matter what genre they say oh my god that they were so good they were so yeah. good at what they so virtuosic and and you know the question i don't often ask them because i don't think they know what i'm talking about but i say did, it, did does it feel good you know because right. oftentimes like you can just play all the notes in the world or, you know be a stand, you know doing circular breathing but if it doesn't feel good then i'm just staring at the wall and yeah. i just wonder like if there was a certain memory or an experience you had maybe Youngstown before you moved to New York where like you just sort of surrendered and were able to sit in this mess because to me it's so hard when you have the chops to essentially go the route of being some sort of incredible first call classical player you could make good dough maybe you know tour but just essentially you have that and everybody's saying well that's just so obvious why don't you pursue that and you're like no, no, no. I want to hit clams. I want to be spontaneous. I want to be in the moment because that one gem of spontaneity is worth everything else. Was there like a moment or can you talk about a time where it was like you surrendered to the process itself? Because I just feel like so many cats, uh, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but so many of them are, yes, they're making a living playing music, but they're pretty miserable doing it. Well, and I, I certainly, you know, was exposed to that. I mean, I, 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 I experienced that, you know, in my early years. And, and of course, when I came to New York, I was still doing like, I mean, I got a graduate degree at Manhattan School of Music and sure. I mean, I, I was still doing kind of like the double life and I played some, uh, I did some Broadway stuff and, well, you, you had know, to pay the bills, you know. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Orchestral stuff. I mean, yeah. I but but you know, it, I just didn't. I didn't dig like the whole. So much of that world for me, that kind of performing. Uh, again, I, I it it all it started to feel a lot like sports. Like it, like I'm. What on does the that free, mean? What explain what that means? Well, That's, like well, yeah. like like I'm on the free for free throw line, you know, in the NCAA final. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I am I going to make the shot or not? You know, right. right. Mean, and if you don't, and, you know, you get, yeah. And, if, I, and, yeah. and, and like with trumpet, my old trumpet teacher in Ohio used to say, he was really into sports cars. And he's like, well, being a trumpet player is like being a race car driver. The only difference is when you're a race car driver and you make a mistake, you die. When you're a trumpet player, you just <laughs> walk. You know what I mean? And I mean, we've all died a few times, you know, like sure. when you crack, you know, splat a note in pictures in an exhibition or something like that. But yeah, like I think for me it was, and 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 I haven't, I didn't, haven't mentioned Lamont Young. I mean, who has, you know, John Hassel and Lamont Young were, have been, they were both, you know, very, very important people in my life. Uh, and, you know, listening to Eno's ambient music, I, I had a, a like a, a real just instinctual attraction to these forms of music that were more economical 
that uh, that that where there wasn't so much going on. Right, um, right. And and then um, as I started experimenting with the trumpet, and also just even in the context of some of these bands that I was playing in, uh, you know, just you know, jamming on like drones on guitars and basses and get just really getting into the into sound uh and I love it. I love it. And overtones and and the power of of the of a, a more stripped down kind of drone sensibility and exploring harmonics and timbre uh not not like so much like a chain of chord progression or melody just the 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 sort of cosmic idea of of that sound could actually breed this these kind of higher states of consciousness which i mean i don't want to emphasize it too much but no, dude i want to tell my, you man, my, my move my move into being a creative musician and frankly it's something that i've never felt that comfortable talking about that much but i'm getting to an age where now i guess i feel like i can is that it was very much uh, related to my experiences which were limited at that time but but with uh you know psychedelic experience and being able to uh to to kind of like you know cut away a lot of what seemed to be uh, extraneous and and really just delve into uh this more kind of essential quality of sound and 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 particularly with my instrument with timbre uh so in other words elevating timbre to uh, a much higher level and and you know what's interesting is that i've been doing the mutant trumpet for 40 years i started doing it in the early 80s and it's really only in the music that you heard the other night this music that i've been doing just in the last few years it's really only now that i feel that i'm actually achieving what i set out to do originally because I mean, if people listen to my records, I mean, you're going to hear a lot of drum machines and synthesizers and all kinds of and vocalists. And I mean, I've done all kinds of different things. It took a long time for me to get to the point to where I could actually realize my goal of making a complete musical statement that really just is completely based around that gesture that I just described. This, this idea of this multi-tambral electroacoustic instrument and it it's and that's what it is i mean i mean it's talking to ben neal here on the jake feinberg show and he is articulating incredibly well about stuff that is sometimes hard to put into words i just um can you do you, so going back to this to a degree uh in my own psychedelic experiences uh you know it a lot of the dogma surrounding whatever it was that I was dealing with in my life sort of fell away. And I just right. wonder if the psychedelics gave you permission uh, in, the, in to, to build the mutant trumpet, to, to, to go oh, in that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 well, and that, I, I mean, that I, was, that was a realization that I had. It's like, you know, all of a sudden it became very clear to me, wait a minute, this thing that I'm devoting my life to, of you know, trying to play Petrushka perfectly <laughs> This isn't why. This isn't really what I like about music. Right. This this isn't why I'm doing music. You know, it it kind of revealed to me a whole like different you know sense of purpose. And you know, 
this trajectory, that trajectory that I started on is, you know, where I'm sitting right now. Uh, I'm in Santa Cruz, California with Ralph Abraham, who is who I got to know his work through my relationship with Terrence McKenna, uh, the psychedelic philosopher. Wow. And Ralph, Ralph is a chaos mathematician who I mean, he's a psychedelic chaos mathematician who wrote oh my God. Uh, some books with Terrence McKenna and Rupert Sheldrake, you know, so um, he's somebody who has really very deeply explored and is still, he's 86, uh, and he's also a visual artist. He, he had this program here at UC Santa Cruz called the Visual Math Institute. Uh, he's, an, he's an emeritus professor at UCSC, uh, and, and, and his work is all about doing computer realizations of uh, uh, fractal chaos mathematics. Uh, and we're collaborating. We've been working on developing a collaboration for some years and we're performing together. So this whole that whole notion of consciousness expansion, but yeah, like like basically, I do think it, at least in my experience, it it it, it did it, it a lot of things like the extraneous things kind of fall away you know exactly uh, all the stuff it reveals that, like a core you know right very very clear and very yeah. sincere and i love that now you you were in this uh this uh tp or some sort of pyramid tr- the pyramid pyramid, pyramid yeah. and you had this vision you're now how quickly i just want to be clear moog helped you build the apparatus the system to for output but in terms of the mutant trumpet how quickly after that trip did you start to build the mutant trumpet? well i was already, as i said i was already fooling around with it i had oh, you were trumpet. already feeling you are i was so already fooling around with it i had a trumpet that i could take the bell off of you know sometimes trumpets what they have a, a what's called a tuning bell so rather yeah. than rather than tuning it from the slide the whole bell slides and it, it, you know, it was supposed to make it play better. And uh, so I had a C trumpet, you know, the normal trumpet that we mostly play is in B flat, but I had a C trumpet that had a removable bell. So I used to take the bell off of the C trumpet, stick it onto the first valve slide. Uh, and then when every time I press the first valve, the sound would be thrown into this different bell with the mute. Now you couldn't really do that much with it because you know, you couldn't, then the first valve wasn't a first valve and, you know, it didn't do, it didn't do its normal function. And it was fortuitous. I happened to be in a brass quintet at that time with a guy, Rob Cole, who was a French horn player who had worked at the King Instrument Factory in Elkhart. He was, you know, he had a repair business, but, but he had really, you know, worked in uh, building brass instruments. And after I had that experience, I started talking to him and I said, you know, let's, can we try to build something like this? Wow. And um, he got, we got these old like Bundy cheapo trumpets and uh, <laughs> he, he's, and, and a, a, a set, he's like, yeah. And we, and we kind of came up with the idea together of an extra set of valves, excuse me, an extra set of valves that would, um, you know, enable me to switch between, and I was thinking, yeah, let's let's have three rather than having two bells. Let's have three bells, and then let's all have the third valve be a quarter tone on the extra set of valves, and uh, and it worked. You know, and it's funny the the first one 
that he that we made we actually the 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 second bell we actually he cut the bell off and he actually put a harmon mute on it like oh, i like love it permanently dude. so rather than it having an actual bell it just went right into the harmon mute uh and you know i played that one for a few years i mean i used to carry it around in a laundry bag and <laughs> it was like falling apart but then like a couple years then as i and then i started getting to think from i got the thing from moog like a, a, eh, it was maybe a year i think i got that like right when i moved to new york so it probably took a couple years for for that to all come together and then i had him I had Rob, uh, you know, build another one for me that was made out of a, you know, a better instrument. And um, and that was where we also then I thought, well, let's put a slide on it. Let's have the third valve be the uh, the third bell uh, be a slide. So he he cut a little piece of a trombone slide and we put a piccolo trumpet bell on there to uh, so that I could do uh, a glissando. Yeah, and and he Rob worked on my instruments even going up until the nineties. I actually sold that first instrument to a museum in Germany. Oh. Uh, when I was touring over there in the eighties, uh, we I played at this museum in Bochum, Germany, that had a big musical instrument collection, and the guy was, you know, really fascinated with what I was doing. So they they bought the first one for my collection. I have no idea if they've ever exhibited or. Dude, anything. I really need to. Uh, that is what a beautiful acquisition. Yeah, unbelievable. And, 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 I, and there was a. I had a. I had a write up in the New York Times Magazine when that happened because that, as a result of that, right. I got the money to you know really upgrade uh, the 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 trumpet again. You know, I've done several different versions of it, but but now if you jump forward to the one I'm playing now, um, which I just it, I started, it took about four or five years to make it, uh, starting in like 2015. Uh, I decided rather than using uh, instruments that were, you know, just putting together parts from other instruments that I had or that a repair person had, uh, I actually had this uh, boutique you know, really master trumpet builder in Holland, uh, Van Laar trumpets, Hub Van Laar, who sadly passed away tragically at like in his 50s on last Christmas. But uh, he uh, and the company's still going and, you know, they they make commercial instruments, obviously. But sure. yeah, they built, he really built this one uh, for me. And, uh, you know, it was, it's, it's it, as an instrument, it's much, much more satisfying to play just as an acoustic instrument uh, because all the other ones were kind of cobbled together from usually from an instrument that I had that I would repurpose and and then some extra parts and stuff. So, yeah, this last one is the first time that I've actually had someone, you know, build the thing. Yeah. So um, when you first got into the minimalist that um uh, hang in new york is that when you first met lamont young yeah so i when i when i was preparing to move to new york and i had i had kind of gone through this period of you know doing some hallucinogens and stuff and i i only i did that for a lim very limited period of time i, I it was me really, too yeah me too it was, yeah. One, like, it was basically one year of my life me that too I, I did, yeah. that, that i experimented with that and then I sort of took another year to, uh, you know, digest it all. And that's when I was, 
you know, getting more serious about you know, really you know, doing my own thing. Uh, you know, I had been become acquainted with John Hassel's music like a few years before. And um, and I I wrote a letter to John Hassel, care of EG Records, you know, who Eno's label that sure. he was with at the time. And, uh, you know, saying, hey, I'm this guy, I've got this thing called the mutant trumpet, and I'm really into what you do, blah, blah, blah. You know, firing an arrow out into the air, you know, I mean, that's something I tell my students, you know, fire arrows out in the air all the time. You just never know when they're going to land. And lo and behold, he it got to him and he wrote back to me and, uh, you know, invited me to his place when I moved to New York, which I was just like totally blown away. I mean, this guy <laughs> was like my idol, you know, he's working with the talking heads and Eno and doing trumpet and electronics and minimal music with, you know, these like ethnic grooves. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. And I wanted to like study with him, you know, I wanted to be, and, but he wasn't interested in that kind of a relationship. He, he, he didn't, you know, he just wasn't into that, you know, being a teacher, but, but he said, well, you should go take some lessons with Lamont, I think, you know, and of course I knew immediately who he was talking about. I mean, I knew Lamont Young. I, I, again, Lamont's music is so, so little of it is recorded. I mean, it's like, you couldn't really hear the music, but I certainly, you know, I had read Michael Nyman's book and, you know, all the books on experimental music, which he was prominently featured in. Uh, so I met him, um, in 83, 84, and, uh, I started studying with him, uh, studying Indian Raga. And then also I was showing him my, uh, early ideas that I was working on, my uh, compositions that I was doing, which were, I always liked working with percussion a lot. Uh, a lot of a lot of my music over the years, we talked about this at the club. You know, Absolutely, a of, yeah. A lot of my music over the years uh, is for me, myself, with a percussionist. Uh, and and I was doing that. I was, I, some of those very first pieces I did were for, uh, with, for me and a percussionist. Uh, but, uh, and then with Lamont, uh, the thing I think that was, well, first of all, Lamont is just such a, um, you know, he, he's, he's an incredibly eccentric, far out musician, uh, you know, who had, you know, lived this life of the avant-garde, you know, for decades at that point. And yeah, he was just you know, kind of it was like really eye-opening to be around <laughs> can you give an example can you give some examples of how i because i mean this is this cat was like he he was so avant-garde as a musician and he saw like the beatnik movement come through he saw all these oh yeah he saw yeah. it all so i mean what 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 was it like i mean was he was he was there any part of of uh was he totally in uh in the extraterrestrial world or was there anything grounding him here well, I mean, when I met him, he was at the peak of his support from the Dia Art Foundation. Uh, and the, for, you know, listener, I mean, the Dia Art Foundation is uh, an organization that sponsor, sponsors, uh, that sponsored, uh, they're still, you know, I mean, it's still going, uh, but they were mainly focused on minimal art, minimal visual art, like all the visual artists like Donald Judd and um the 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 minimalists from the 60s but 
you know, Lamont curated this uh, very famous concert series in 1960, I think, or 61 at Yoko Ono's Loft which was like the the birth of the whole Fluxus movement. Oh, my God. I don't even know about this. You no, know, no. I mean, he, he this was... This is unreal. He, he, he went to Darmstadt in the 50s, like Hassel, and uh, he did this whole piece that was all based around the number seven that, uh, you know, <laughs> shook up the whole thing. And when Stockhausen came to... Well, whatever. I could go on and on about Lamont, but... He, you know, his whole thing, one of his main ideas, I would say that the thing that he's most recognized for is that he was the first composer in Western music to write music that was completely based out of long sustained tones. Uh, wow. And he, wow. his, his trio for strings from 1950, it's in the like mid 50s. It's a serial composition, but, you know, it, it, it lasts for, you know, I don't know, it's a, like an hour and a half or something. And it's just all different long sustained tones being held against each other. So he really was the first minimalist composer. You read all the books on minimalism. He is considered the father of minimalism. Eno called him the daddy of us all uh, in the <laughs> sense that, you know, he introduced this idea of uh, a, a very, very reductionist concept of music. Now, we think of minimalism now more as with Terry Riley, Steve Reich, and Philip Glass, the rhythmic cycling and repetitive aspect of minimalism, which Absolutely. I'm also very into. Absolutely. Uh, but Lamont never did uh, as much of that. Although the other thing he did was he was a sax player and he was in he was he was from Idaho originally. He went to school at UCLA and he was playing jazz at, when he was at UCLA with, you know, Bill, Billy Higgins and, you know, a lot of the Charles the Lloyd. Oh, this is unbelievable. This and is unreal. Was, and, you, and you listen to some, he was playing the sub, he started playing Sopranino sax uh, in, in the sixties. And he was doing like this very much like Coltrane, like very, you know, rapid arpe arpeggios, uh you know repetitive arpeggios and so so he did have that kind of a background but but what he really you know settled into was music based on long sustained tones and then he has this he did this uh so they did these drone concerts they were extremely influential on the velvet underground if you watch the velvet underground movie he's that todd haynes just did uh, he's very prominently featured in there because wow. john kale was in Lamont's group at right at the time that the Velvet Underground was forming. So that kind of droning sensibility in songs like Venus and Furs that is so are so characteristic of the Velvet Underground, that was really a direct influence of uh, you know of Lamont's music. So I mean, I kind of knew all that when I met him. I mean, he had a there there's like you know this whole mythology around this guy. He he was you know such a mystical kind of figure well when I, met him, when I met him he was at the peak of his support from the dia art foundation he had an entire building in tribeca oh my god like, you got, this like is, uh... a, a, an enormous building it was the former new york merc exchange sure that had a, a this this enormous room i mean it was like I, it was at least, I guess it was like three floors tall 
because uh, it was a trading floor. You know, it was like where they where they would do trading, like a stock market. Absolutely, basically. yeah. Basically, uh, and and that and he had, um, you know, he his whole thing is he's really into just intonation, and that's where I learned from him about these the these my interest in drones and uh harmonics and resonance uh, it was from him that i really learned like the whole mathematical functionality of that and and how uh you know pure pure purely tuned ratios and numerical relationships are what create these uh sensations of you know kind of otherworldliness or you know cosmic you know musical phenomena so yeah i mean he was living in this place up on the top floor uh they had his wife marion zazila is a light artist and they always collaborated on everything together so they had several different rooms that you could go into where like electronic just like one chord is sustaining with <laughs> you know these different kinds of lighting and sculptures that were kind of like reflecting the light and stuff it was just this completely otherworldly uh wow. place uh, i mean uh not too long after that they they lost that building and they moved back to uh their loft that was because you know dia hit on some hard times in the 80s and they had to cut back on a lot of their um of their stuff and so they moved back into their place on Church Street, where they still live. Lamont's eighty-eight, and I perform. I'm still performing with him. I that just is so inspirational, man. That I just is the... performed with him. Well, so I mean, uh, it goes on for so long. You'll no, have it's to fine. Go ahead. It's, yeah, go ahead. Me off if I go too long, but so when I first met him, he was work. He had been doing this piece uh called uh, he had this thing called the four dreams of china which are basically it's there it, each one of them is essentially a different inversion of a single chord uh and so he wanted to develop a version of that for multiple trumpets with harmon mutes and i started working with him on that i mean i was you know super enthusiastic about you know working with him and uh and uh we we I, I i worked with him to come up with a new version of the piece uh which we started playing the first we played it at his place uh in the the big place uh, one time like that was probably in like 84 85 and we did it at the kennedy center in washington shortly after that uh but i have been playing that piece with him uh or again, for, for 40 years, off and on. Uh, we did a recording of it in the 90s. Uh, we started doing it with four trumpets because there are four, there are four notes in the chord, but then eventually we moved to do it with eight trumpets because with four people, you couldn't really sustain the chord. You need to have eight people so that you can spell each other off to be able to actually hold the chord indefinitely. But we came up with this idea... Uh, is a structured improvisation where there are four notes in the piece and everyone pl can play the different notes but it's like an improvisation game where certain notes are allowed to be played with other notes and some notes can't follow other notes uh so it's a very kind of heady 
uh, improvisation. And we, uh, this German trumpet player, Marco Blau, uh, gotten me, I don't know, 15 years ago or something, and was interested in playing it. And so we, I worked with him and he put together an ensemble of mostly uh, European trumpet players. And we've had a big resurgence of that work. Uh, we've done it, oh, I don't know, at least a dozen times in major big cathedrals and concert halls all around Europe. We also did it at Disney Hall in LA uh, in uh, 2019. So yeah, and then just like a few years ago, a couple, yeah, like three years ago, uh, I got asked for the first time to play in Lamont's small group, which is uh, he him singing uh, a guitar and bass who are playing just intonation instruments, uh, a, a female vocalist who is uh, his kind of disciple, Jung Hee Choi, and a tabla player and me. And it's it's like a synthesis of blues and raga. Uh, well, I want to really, before yeah, before I really forget. into blues, you know. So yeah, so, so my trajectory with him, it's a forty-year thing. John Hassel introduced me to him, and you know, he's just he's been like a, a total you know mentor to me in uh, in so many ways. Yeah. Well, this is important. A couple of things. Um, going back to his time in Southern California playing jazz. Yeah. I mean, Train yeah. Train was deeply rooted and listened to a lot of Indian raga music yeah. uh, in the early. Yeah. And I, I, so uh, essentially when you started to collaborate with him, if I heard you correctly, he was hipping you to raga, to polyrhythms. Is that, is that right? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. So, <laughs> and, and just intonation. Explain, know, like explain, whole... explain that, that sort of, uh, how he, how he hipped you to it and how you were able to sort of integrate it into your own well he was he was working with um he had people building uh synthesizers for him uh that were i mean they were using digital technology to do very specific tunings mm -hmm. based on whole number ratios it, i mean it goes back to pythagoras and the ancient greeks uh of <laughs> if you if you tune you know and it's like a whole it's a whole subject to not to, to, again no no talking, i agree yeah we won't get down tangent. yeah but <clears throat> um western music since the baroque anyway has has all been done in in what's called equal temperament um and so when you hear uh, if you go up to a, a normally tuned piano or an electronic keyboard and you play CG, a perfect fifth. So in just intonation, the ratio of a perfect fifth, which Pythagoras discovered in experimenting with uh, hitting um, anvils with different weights of hammers. And then he started using monochords of different lengths to understand the relationships between the overtone series and 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 in simple integers but if you play a cg perfect fifth on an equal tempered keyboard you're not hearing a 3 to 2 ratio you're hearing a slightly different a slightly reduced ratio mm -hmm. and that's because of the phenomenon of the pythagorean comma that in order to be able to play in all different keys, you, you, you they have to 
compens make compensations to uh, where you don't really hear perfect intervals. So if you get away from that and you start like playing really perfectly tuned intervals, and by the way, one of the things that got me so interested in this is that the trumpet is in all brass instruments are based on the overtone series. So, you know, that that's that's what a trumpet is, you know, you you that's what a bugle is, you know, you you go up the overtone series of harmonics, which is this diminishing uh series of intervals. Um well, he was working with uh, engineers to design these synthesizers that would create these sound environments based on these numerical frequencies. And then he also did the well-tuned piano, which was where he retuned the piano into just intonation, which means that, and so what happens when you play a really perfectly tuned fifth or fourth, you hear what the 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 resonance of that creates auditory hallucinations. It creates harmonics, overtones, and subharmonics, again, depending on what the instruments are. Uh, so like when we play this piece for eight trumpets, it's it's four notes, it's one chord that's being played. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the voices come in and out, and sometimes it drops down to a single note. But but you, because it's improvised, but the audience, the listener, hears all of these different other things that are not really being played. Right, that right. Are, are, that are a result of these frequencies combining in that way. So I really, from him, I really learned how there was a kind of mathematical basis to all of that. And then what I was really interested in doing, because... You know, this is one of the things that I find is sometimes a little bit different about artists now. Like, like I would have never just like copied what he was doing and just done music that sounded exactly like him. You know, I mean, that's that's what cats are doing today. I don't understand. Now, younger people don't have any problem doing that, but uh, I would not have been comfortable doing that at that. No, it's never gonna, it's never gonna feel or be the same. I mean, that's just. It's like transcribing an Elvin Jones solo. It's just right. not. So, so what I started getting interested in was taking those those relationships of resonance, which obviously were very powerful. I mean, they were powerful for me as, as a player and as experiencing what he was doing, and then basically taking those kinds of relationships and 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 expend, extending those into rhythm, form duration and all that kind of thing and basically i i use the term rhythmonics to describe you know this idea of applying these principles of tuning and resonance and then as computers were starting to you know be accessible in the mid 80s you know it was possible to start realizing that stuff so i haven't been as focused on just intonation i've been more focused on using those principles to organize uh, the music that I do. And, and that's very much exactly still what I'm doing now. This whole, the, the whole new series that I'm doing, the stuff you heard the other night is all based on Fibonacci series relationships uh, and using those to create these kinds of algorithms, which then I improvise into by, you know, playing my multi-tambral sounds into it and, having it spit it back out at me and improvise with it. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, uh, 
I don't know if you ever got hit to the band Oregon with. Uh, oh Paul. God, okay. I studied with Colin Walcott. Yeah. Okay. Well, no. So okay. So so yeah. I, right now I have to go to Aravaca, which is uh, it, it was just a piece of land down in Arizona, uh, southern Arizona, unincorporated land. And you're not going to believe this, but Glenn Moore, the bass player, lives there. So I'm going to hang I with I saw him. a couple of posters of that had him on there. Yeah, no, the, dude, they play. That's the a whole night. other insane. I got kicked out of the club for having too good a time. That's a whole other story. He was there. <laughs> he was there with this, this soprano cat. But so I have to go there now. I was thinking when you get into when you get back from SC uh, next week, we, we could do set two because we just kind of scratched the surface here. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I know I talk too long. I love to talk about Ben. This honestly, ben, ben, honestly, the, the, I would not allow there are cats that that talk, but I would not allow them to go on if they weren't riffing poetry. This stuff, what you some of the stuff that you were able to string together is going to just be I mean, so much of what I do, I want to live on long after I've left this planet. And to yeah. me, so much of this wisdom It'll hit now and it'll hit later. But if you were not making sense, I would have. We would have gone a different direction. You were on fire. All right, cool. Yeah, that's great. Man. Yeah, well, man. I'd, I'd, I'll, I'd love to. I'd love to talk more. As you can tell, I love talking about. No, this man, it's important, and, and it's, I think it's it, important. You know, yeah. No, it's, no, it's 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 important for on so many different levels. But really, the idea, what I'm trying to get at, because I'm not a musician and I'm not a mathematician, not even close. But it's like. I want cats to look, this is the thing I want you to think about. Yeah. Is in this modern era, how, cause even with the, the late night Winston Salem DJ stuff, <clears throat> there was no linear format to what they were playing. They could play whatever they wanted. Essentially. Now yeah. you have, you have syndicated, you, you'll hear the same music regurgitated for a year. So the point is you were able to figure out a way to seek. You have to seek. Some of yeah. that is, you know, and, and that's what I want younger cats artists to do is not transcribe the Elvin Jones solo or this thing or that or, you know, comp that, but then yeah. say, I'm going to go and do my own thing. That's all I care about. Yeah. And that's, I think, and in a lot of ways, it's, it's hard, as we talked about, just sort of. I mean, it's hard to make a living doing that. It's you, it's very hard musically to but do it's, that. But even forget about making a living. It's really, I think it's really hard for young people to to even, you know, approach knowing what that is. I know. You know, that's you know, the I more. Mean, that, because, that's... because of the fact, you know, we have 100,000 tracks a day released. It would take six months to listen to all the music that is released in one day, you know. So right. how are you going to come up with anything that can possibly, you know, stand out from all that? And I guess that's kind of like what I feel like my role is as an educator and, you know, is to try to represent, uh, you know, what it means to to do that. And I appreciate your recognition of, uh, of the importance of that, you know, and, and frankly, it may in the future, it's going to, I think, look very different from like what I did or what Lamont did in terms of what that really means. But I think people still have to maintain that, uh, that kind of exploratory sense. Otherwise the whole thing just becomes kind of disposable. I completely agree. And I also feel that, um, well, we've got, we so we'll start with Colin Walcott because that man first is 
his spirit is inside of me. I've interviewed Towner, McCandless. I'm going to see Glenn. Yeah. I love. So we'll start That's with him. Great, but I, al- yeah, I also, yeah. uh, I feel like if people just maybe just want to, instead of all the new release stuff, every day, tracks every day, just go listen to Lamont Young's trio, you know, uh, tr- whatever yeah. that. Tr- trio just, for yeah, yeah, just sort of, just sort of. Just sort well, of the, the trumpet piece. I mean, the piece that I play, the the second dream, man. That's a really deep piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, man, enjoy Santa Cruz, and uh, we'll do something. Yeah, that, so we'll yeah. talk more. Yeah, absolutely, Thanks, brother. It's great to connect. All right, see great you. hang, man. Cheers. See you. Peace. Right, cheers. Bye.